1: And we're back. Another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCoursey here with Matt Watson. Hi, Matt. What's going on, man?
2: Oh, I'm just, you know, I'm I'm trying to learn
1: some new things and get some new people around. And I realized we've never...
2: You can teach an old dog new tricks?
1: Yeah, maybe. Maybe? I'm getting old, though, man. Me too. You know what? As I've gotten older, every now and then, I like to sit down and just have a... get myself a nice, smooth pour of a of a freshly brewed or distilled beverage.
2: Where, where is it? Well, why don't we have that today? I mean, it is 1030 in the morning. You can drink all day if you don't start early.
1: (laughs) Um, I'm just saying that that's true. Friday goals. It's Friday, That's true. But you know, fortunately we've got a, we've got a bit of a local icon and someone that represents a really cool brand here in town that, that just happens to be able to maybe help me with my desire. To have a drink later in the day i do have a meeting with the bank today i feel like maybe drinking after that would be better than before but you never know so with us today we have andy rieger who's the founder of j rieger and co thanks for having me yeah thanks for coming in and uh we're gonna get all into what you do now for those of you that are listening today's episode of start a puzzle is brought to you by fullscale.io you know i like it when you're interactive so Go to j r i e g e r co dot com, and you can learn all about making whiskey, or gin, or gin, or vodka. You guys
0: make all those, or amaro? No, we got the former head of Maker's Mark and the former head of Tanqueray. They don't want to each just make one product.
1: I guess that's true. I guess that's true. Well, let's talk all about that because you know there's a there's a story that I'm going to let you tell, but you've brought something back to Kansas City that was once. Uh, Uh, started in the late 1800s and now is back, and it's a thing. So why don't you uh, give us the backstory about Jay Rieger and Co.?
0: So the company started back in 1887 by Jacob Rieger, who was my triple-great-grandfather. Jacob was the immigrant of the family, the doer, just like they all were back in those days. He ran it for a little over a decade, his son Alexander. My double-great took over in about 1900. Alexander was the marketer of the family, really got it to be a nationally distributed brand. As a part of that, he also constructed the Rieger Hotel in 1915 in the corner of 20th and Main Street in Kansas City to coincide with Union Station opening up. Mm. It was more or less this marketing arm of the distillery that every time people would get out of Union Station, they would have to see this massive three-story mural of a whiskey bottle so that they would always understand that Kansas City was J. Rieger and co. Vice versa. And then in Prohibition, 1919, once that hit, distillery got killed. They sold off the hotel because its primary purpose was no longer anything else. And that was supposed to really be the end of it.
1: What? So it, just to, to verify this in the timeline, so they built a hotel in 1915 to help sell booze. And then and four years later, it's like, no, I don't think so.
2: Yeah. You know, it's like, you know, do you want to be a hotel operator or you want to be an alcohol brand? And you know. Well, at that point, the only thing they had they could do was being a hotel operator, though. Yeah. so They, right, they, they, they should they have hung on to the it, hotel. <laughs> they sold it all and just went a different
0: way altogether.
1: Yeah. But Prohibition went to what What year did they actually left that? Was it
0: 1933?
1: Oh, wow. That's so a 14, long time.
0: 14 years. Yeah. So mo- was... most companies went out of business entirely. And um, the ones that survived and were able to come back afterwards, very few started up as soon as Prohibition ended. Some, like Jack Daniels, didn't even come back until after World War II which most people don't really think about when they consider prohibition ending and a brand like Jack Daniel's and how it's been around forever but ultimately with prohibition it sort of was that thing that most companies that existed prior when you think about you can't do what you do today for 14 years you're going to find a new life skill
1: yeah so no doubt or back. or go do it somewhere in Canada I, well yeah and you know the the interesting part you know about prohibition and stuff like that is i mean it kind of largely has been proven out that it doesn't really work because people still do what people still want to do. So they kind of just drove that underground and, and well, they made a lot of people that
0: were working outside of the laws up quite a bit of money. Well, prohibition was the yeah. actual foundation of uh, the income tax, which most people don't realize. So alcohol for a time period being actually in one year, I don't remember what year it was made up 40% of the total government income And they taxed it so much. And the unfortunate side is everyone was getting so drunk back in those days that they sort of saw the writing on the wall that they had to do it for a period of time just to hit the reset button. And when they sort of started to see that, they brought around the income tax, I don't know, like 30 years or so before Prohibition. But it really started to become a thing that they were going to realize that was this primary driver of revenue for the government because alcohol was going to be no more. And then, well... Came into a whole different set of problems. And, and that, same, that same thing of
1: income tax is actually how they drove some of the bad actors out because that was actually what Al Capone ended up going to jail for was tax evasion, not any of the other, quote, criminal enterprises that he was involved in.
0: Yeah, tax evasion is a lot easier to prove yeah. than murder or conspiracy
2: yeah. or, you know, anything like Especially bribery. back then. Yeah. And it's like,
0: hey, where's this? Uh, look at all this money you have. Where'd this come from? Don't have a record of so, it.
2: So your family's company. Basically, ceased operations around 1920. And then, so when did it come back?
0: So we didn't bring it back until 2014, which I think we'll probably dig really into unless we want to do it now. Well, Yeah, let's get in. No, we're just, we're
1: here to, we're here to talk about whatever. So So, So it really
0: died and, you know, really you think it's going to be gone forever. And so sort of skipping forward multiple generations. When I was a kid growing up, we always had old bottles of whiskey around the house, nothing in it, unfortunately, just empties. Uh, old advertisements old shot glasses but never really cared you know when we're all growing up you think about when you're in high school you're definitely not concerned about what happened in your family 100 years ago you're concerned about literally everything else under the sun so didn't care didn't ask a ton of questions and then in uh, 2010 actually a restaurant opened up in the historic Rieger hotel and i went in on the second night they were opened and met the guys that were behind it and one of the gentlemen behind it said hey we should Consider restarting Jay Rieger and Co. again, and at that time I was working for a uh, private equity group, and then eventually shifted over to investment bank. But just and, sort of, and you weren't
1: even in KC at the time.
0: No, I was born and raised here, but I was living in Dallas. Yeah. And we just sort of kept talking here and there. And um, a year later, I ended up having lunch with him and looked at his really rough draft of a business plan. And you know, he really wanted to just create a bar where they made alcohol and. I just thought it'd be cool to come visit when I came back and me saying, let me help you sort of put your numbers together to change up altogether to then doing almost all of the business planning for it, totally shifted the business model away from anything that had to do with retail initially into really being this pure manufacturing distribution based business that really had to focus on the brand and the product and the pricing and the efficiencies and all of that, which is a very unpopular approach because if it's not good, then you lose and you completely fail. So it was a big risk on that front, but taking that approach was very different and it led us to get in touch with the guy that used to run Maker's Mark and the guy that used to run Tanqueray and the guy that was huge sales consultant for Diageo across the world and just having guys that see that this is the real business that matters and this is what people should be starting was a way to bring in those types of experts and it allowed us to go out and raise real money to start up this venture.
2: So as you refound- as you basically restarted this and you're one of the founders, do you have co-founders? Was that guy end up being part of it? Yeah.
0: So Ryan was a co-founder from the beginning as okay. well. Yeah. And so Ryan right now runs our sales team and I run the operations of the
2: company. And he does he still have that restaurant at the hotel? No, no. He got out of that a while ago. Okay. So ni- 90 years later. The restaurant still exists though. Did, it's a wonderful restaurant. When you went to restart this, did the old brand really have any value at this at this point? Like no, ninety years and, later, and did you still own it?
0: No. So the trademark expired in nineteen twenty-two, actually, and so we own the exact same trademark that you know cost us a couple hundred bucks or something to re-register this trademark all over again. And so getting to be able to have the exact same trademark that they had back in the olden days. Uh, the exact same logo and everything. You know, we just really modernized. We said, what would this look like today if Prohibition was never a thing? What would be the natural evolution? And so Timeless Classic is really that approach that we take with this brand. And, you know, it was the right approach. It wasn't a greedy approach. It wasn't this ultra-modern approach, but it really communicated the history of the brand. It communicated to sort of what society likes nowadays in
2: brands and what they want to see. And it's something that stands for something and truly has that meaning. What's interesting about it is the brand really didn't have any value from a market awareness standpoint, but it has a really cool story, right? And the story and the backstory help create the brand, recreate the brand, right? But, yeah, so, I mean, so the what makes it easier to create a brand when you have an existing story? I mean, to the average yeah. consumer, there's yeah. like almost nobody alive that yeah. even would have recognized the brand at this point, right? But yeah,
0: Yes and no. Um, you know, locally, I would say not because, or, you know, locally, I would say there was brand value because of that restaurant when in the old Rieger Hotel, and so they actually recreated that mural that was on the side of the building. And mm. so ever since they had opened in 2010, people would always go in there and say, hey, can I get some of the whiskey? Yeah. Oh. Sure. And so it sort of had this natural characteristic. And the restaurant every year is a perennial James Beard nominee. See so a little
2: grassroots it, growth. Th- from th- that. Yeah, it really this
1: was. Is, this is a, sim- as a kind of a similar story. You know, so my family owned a dairy in the Midwest and de Corsi milk and ice cream. And the name was plastered all over everything. And it it was a thing until like the early sixties and my grandfather sold it to, you know, some company that consolidated it into something different. But I grew up similar to you with the brand around empty milk bottles, trays, ads, stuff like that. And, you know, I've thought at certain points, I'm like, man, it'd be really cool to open this back up, you know, just like an ice cream shop or whatever. And, and just doing something different with alcohol. But maybe, maybe. Yeah. But you look at like preserving the nostalgia of the brand and stuff like that. And you know, you talk about the, the trademark expiring and those were some of the things I thought about because technically the dairy was sold to another company. So I don't even know if they, if the fam, I never really pursued that. I actually did for about a week and I learned that that selling ice cream is, is, (laughs) well, it's tough because I mean, you know, it's, you know, yesterday it was 30 degrees today it's 68 degrees and you just never know what you're going to get here. So yeah. Yeah. They refer to like a walk-in ice cream shop. They call that a dip shop apparently, but yeah, kind of a lot of work and ice cream's a pain in the ass because if it melts at all and then it doesn't refreeze. And I was like, okay, I'm going to just go do something different, but yeah. So what kind of challenges and, you know, with that, you know, you, you went a different route and you did revive the family brand. What kind of, um, what kind of challenges as an entrepreneur and as a, so you're restarting a startup, like what'd you run into? What were some of the things that were tough? What was maybe a couple of things as well that you ran into that you were like, oh wow, I didn't even consider that would be a thing.
0: Yeah. So we're, you yeah, know, I would say that I'm the eternal pessimist. With everything, and that's sort of how I make decisions. When I um, started to understand what the world was about, when I was working at that equity group, you know, I really started to get into and fall in love with distressed debt. And so, really, like, how do you go in and fix things? And when I transitioned to the investment bank, I focused on distressed clients, and so kind of became my niche a little bit. So everything and the decisions that we really made were based upon downside scenarios, and so sort of looked at the problem uh, from, if you want to look at the entrepreneur side of things where entrepreneurs are really the optimists and the, you know, let's look at the ceiling and let's really try to figure that out. I looked at everything from the opposite and I said, you know, what's the floor and how do we raise that? And so, you know, we're a very asset heavy driven company as opposed to, you know, software like you guys do where overnight, you know, someone can get into software and you can have a million users. And for us, if you said, Hey, but you know, I
1: don't think it really happens like that often. You say no. like that overnight. Cause we always joke that, You know, we've had a lot of people that come in here like Kylie Nichols from Nickel and Suede was one. She was like, I was suddenly an overnight sensation that had been doing it for eight years. You know, and I mean, so, you know, yeah, well, but 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 people look at it. They're like, it's a new overnight
2: sensation. But things like whiskey, uh, bourbon and whatever are not as scalable businesses, right? Because it takes weeks or months to produce years yeah, years yeah so to it's to produce. aging yeah so it's not like our software business where like you have a thousand people sign up yeah, today yeah, like yeah. they literally like uh we sold out come back later like yeah, I, re- I recently nothing you i
1: recently do. learned about whiskey and i did not realize things about the barrel you know like the barrel is a big part of the requirement and like i learned about honeycombing a barrel yeah look at me
2: now vodka you well, can, no, the, that but
1: well i get it but like i just learned the the reason why some people do that because apparently the more wood use expose the whiskey to i don't know man apparently there's like
2: now vodka on the other hand makes a couple days or a couple weeks yeah so whatever, so right? vodka and gin are just traditional inventory items so
0: so really like when you get into it and you look at the model and the idea you know if you're really building a company the right way that's making whiskey vodka and gin are super easy because that's why a lot of people make those and focus on those and because there is no lead time You can scale it pretty fast. Yeah. And so when you also and so that's why there's so much competition. And when you have really good whiskeys, there's a lot less competition because there's one good way to make good whiskey. And that's the right way, which is just make it make it good and then throw it into a barrel for a long time. So you don't have that leeway to just expand overnight unless you go out and, you know, you buy already aged stock, but then you're paying a lot of money and then your margins become next to nothing. So you really have to make that decision as to what you ultimately want it to look like. And so all the decisions more or less that we made to the company were just these build your asset base, do it at a nice growth rate, but we can't scale overnight, which is a really tough thing for people to really think about and understand. Because
2: you got to spend hundreds of thousands of dollars, millions of dollars, whatever, right? Creating all this whiskey that you hope to sell. Yeah. I mean, we,
0: we pump out high five figures a month in our current capacity that are just going into barrels. Yeah. That's it. Like they just sit there, like you have no return on it and hopefully and people like it. Out the door. Let's explain <laughs> that. So with whiskey, it just I mean it's, it it just
1: has to sit. Like what what is occurring during that process that requires like why is it better? So as it ages or sits or like yeah. what's the reason for that? So
0: as the whiskey really interacts with the wood, which is what you were talking about okay. a second ago, you know, there's to hit on what you said, the, the surface area to volume ratio, which right. is what gets altered when you either use a smaller barrel Or you do honeycombing, like you said, which for the listeners, it's basically like making the wood pattern on the inside look like a honeycomb. So there's more surface area. Um, But when you have that interaction with the wood, you're really getting this nice mellowing ability for the whiskey. But you're also ending up with pulling out all of these really awesome caramels and vanilla notes and whatever it is that's in the oak wood. Um, But the other thing that's happening over that time is oxygen is constantly interacting with the whiskey from the air. And so that oxygen that's interacting is really creating that mellowing effect as well. So you have these two different, more or less, flavor components. Whether it's the oxygen it's or chemistry, the it really is, um, which I hated. And so when you have those two <laughs> things, you know, that's what really allows it. It's barrel plus time, and that's it has to have that ability. And using a smaller barrel alters the flavor profile. And so whenever people come on tours, and when we were in the early years, and we have all fifty-three gallon barrels, which are standard size. And so people would always say, why aren't you using small barrels? Like I heard this other distillery is using smaller barrels and they're able to pull their whiskey within one year. We're like, well, if it really made the whiskey taste better, all the big guys would be doing it. And it's just sort of that flat out moment. You're like, yep, you're right. There's no real way to cheat this process other than just having the capital to do it. And so when you talk about it, that's ultimately the biggest concern. Nine pregnant ladies don't
2: make a baby in a month. I
1: think I just said nine women, but yeah. If you had nine pregnant women, they would have no. nine babies in nine months. <laughs>
2: yeah, nine, nine women. Sorry,
1: <laughs>
2: but nine you, women. Well,
1: but you're you're on the right you're on the right track there. Yeah, yeah. By the way, Matt, if you want one baby, do not get nine women pregnant and expect one baby a month later. It's about. It's, <laughs> I'll, I'll try that. If we'll we're, since we're talking about things that take time to to create and age and maybe have a good return at the end. <laughs> <laughs> that's probably that's not a good result at the it. end, <laughs> yeah, that's not it so so, um, and I understand with the, some of the partnerships you made with you know uh, other types of liquor makers and and people that had been involved in the industry. That there might have been reasons for that, but was a diversification of the different types of alcohol you made also about shortening the path to revenue and being able to have a little more diverse or scalable?
0: Yeah. So another unpopular thing that we did was, you know, right now we have four core products and that's it. And if you talk to any... And what are those? Uh, our core whiskey, okay. our gin, our vodka, and our Amaro, which is an Italian style liqueur. Okay. Um, and they all have totally different purposes and none of them overlap. But when you think about four products... For a company that's traditionally like call it five years old and started up in the last 10 years, those companies have 25 different products. And ultimately, it's because everyone's trying to figure out this revenue game as to, oh, if I come out with a new product, I'll get a bunch of orders for it. And then I'll need to come out with a new first product and then all of that. Well, so again, our unpopular strategy to the market was, no, let's just focus and let's be really good at just a small few things because it costs money to have a new product. Mm-hmm. Everyone knows that. Yep. But people get just clouded with this idea that, oh, my first orders will be something amazing. What they forget about then is reduces the quality of all the other products and the time you can focus on the other products. And you can confuse your your production team. You can Are those all under the Rieger brand? Uh, yeah, they all okay. are. Um, but the idea behind it really is just be good at a few things so that people know consistently what it is. Because when you're trying to be here for 30, 40, 50 years, you're not trying to just have that quick explosion up front. You're trying to really make this a long marathon. When you think about uh, you know, our business and our industry, you know, you said earlier about software, you know, our industry in general, people look at the stories like Tito's or Casamigos and these brands that ultimately started up with next to no assets and became these massive things. And that's the problem, is that they are those hope streams. You know, you guys talk about software companies all the time that are worth an insane amount of money. I mean, do the one that everyone talks about Instagram where they have like 8 employees, 10 employees yeah, when they sold for $1, a billion dollars like yeah.
1: but how true? true?
0: Yeah. But but how many companies were out there that had the same startup budget and the same general ideas that ended up being worth zero? And so Tito's was a good example of that. So, so Tito's and Casamigos, you know, you get these
1: few... Well, tell, tell the story with that because I don't think most people... I'm not familiar with the story of either, either...
0: Well, so, so Casamigos is the tequila brand that George Clooney and two other guys founded. And within three years, they sold it for $700 million okay. to Diageo. And everyone's like, man, it's such a great story and it's so heartfelt. And when you look at the facts, they didn't own a single asset other than a trademark. They went down to Mexico and they said, hey... Uh, It's a big contract bottler of tequila. And they said, great, we want this tequila in this bottle under this label. And they're like, great. Okay. Here'll be your shipping point. And that was it. So they did an amazing
1: job of branding.
0: Just, just marketing. That's, that's all it really was. And Tito's was the same way. Tito's doesn't allow tours of their facility. It's not because they're honest and upfront with everything they do. Their product is really good, which is great. But it's when people are like, oh, it's, you know, handmade and it's done just the old school, old fashioned way. You're like, no, like you you can't think those things. But these companies that started out a long time ago, you know, they just made a few right decisions. They really cloud the market as to like what expectations should ultimately be. And when you think about both those brands, they don't have that lead time.
1: So you, you have a history working for private equity and investment firms. And you had to be, I would imagine at some point you felt a little conflicted with your own Training at this point, because a a PE firm is going to look at something, I would think something like alcohol and be like, man, you got an, you don't have an 800 pound gorilla in the room. You've got a whole squad of them in the room. If you're trying to enter this marketplace. Um, I mean, I think that's pretty obvious. I mean, alcohols, there's major, major, major players in there. So does your approach when you go to do that, do you, does it have to be about being lean and being agile? Cause you, you told me before we recorded, you're like, we are not a craft distillery. So where, where do you fit in the, in the midst of that? Like where, what was your approach pattern?
0: No, I mean, so you look at sort of two sets of questions, you know, the craft distillery side, I firmly believe that companies that call themselves craft are hoping for marketing pluses by using that word. I say we're a small distillery because right. in all the markets that we're in, we compete against the distilleries that you're talking about, like the big, massive brands. Yeah. When you compare us directly to them, we're small. When you compare us to what a lot of people that describe themselves as a craft distillery, we're a monster. And so it's not even, you know, when people locally try to compare us with other ones, we're like, eh, it's just a different thing. Like, sure, I guess you could compare us because we have similar products, but, you know, do you compare soccer balls and you know, pool balls just because right. they're both sports. I mean, balls, I guess like you're right on that. But, I, but still,
1: you know, the, the issue is, is like, well, it's like, for example, when we had, you know, like someone like the KC soda company in here and, you know, that guy's reselling, he's not necessarily making his own soda, but he says that they have to keep Pepsi in the, and the KC soda company. Cause some people come in and they're like, yeah, I want a Pepsi. I'm like, that's, I mean, that seems kind of nuts, but you know, that's how, how trained people are. And so like with whiskey, obviously you think of things like Jack Daniels and it's just like, Hey, pick up a bottle of Jack on the way over. And it's, you know, I mean, so some of that, is that just accepting is some of that just accepting the fact that some of these brands just have that built in sales and then knowing that some people do want to give or get something that is different than that.
0: Yeah. I think that, um, you know, in our industry in particular, you look at a lot of the historical elements of big brands and what they've done. And you kind of also look at it nowadays and even call it 2019, you know, people want more than just what their parents told them they should like. And I really have been pushing that brands are becoming more generational than, you know, perpetual. And it's something that people want to fall in love on their own. They don't want to read a billboard and be like, "Oh, I'm supposed to like this. And it's becoming a really difficult game with how easy it is to market to the general consumer these days. So when you sort of think about what we did and our approach in general, you know, having those people involved, the guy that ran Makers, Mark, like most people can't just say that they've got a guy who's got 30 years in the industry that knows everything about whiskey and compliance and, you know, general engineering of distilleries. The guy that ran Tanqueray, no one can say that they've made four gins that have been considered the best gins at different times in the world. You know, the guy that ran the sales team for Diageo, I mean, he gets paid by foreign governments to promote products. I mean, you just don't have these people. And so sort of took that approach of let's have experts and let's do this the right way and let's be patient with this. And, you know, in raising money originally, the biggest thing I said to everybody I talked to was if you want a dividend, this ain't going to be your dividend play. So you're going to have to be willing to be here and be patient and there's going to be more needs, but we're also not going to be that tech company or that company that's trying to like push this massive marketing budget and spending $20 million a year on marketing. And then you hope it works out. So, can you talk about the capital raising you've done? Yeah, so we did um so when we started out, we did a split of equity and debt, and we just started on a relatively shoestring budget for what we were doing with just a million bucks and it was you know just production equipment, but we didn't have to build a bar, we didn't build a gift shop. it was just all of the essentials mm-hmm. to really get proof of concept and then you know, as we got proof of concept down, you know you had a few other opportunities and raised seven figures two other times, and then um, when we sort of three years in got to the point where we were needing to purchase our buildings and really do a mass scale expansion, we just did a, a big, um, eight figure expansion and capital raise that had debt and equity and tax credits layered in. And so it was a really big, fun project that ended up encompassing 60,000 square feet. But you know, it's the capital raising is, I always call it easy when you're not greedy and when you have assets to back it and constant growth, then you have that ability to really look at
2: it and bring people in the right way. Would you say it's hard harder to raise money for this type of business or I would say that it is um it can
0: be both hard and easy when you have a lot of assets that you're building constantly. I
2: mean, are there certain types of like VC funds or something to invest in this? Or like, who do you get the money from?
0: No. So it's typically been
1: wealthy individuals. Okay. Um, I was thinking that was probably the case. People that maybe want to do something different or they have an interest in the product. Yeah. And, you know, like,
0: and alcohol is maybe
1: just want to say they own part of a whiskey brand.
0: Yeah. I mean, it's, it. you know, you have a little bit of that emotional level to it. Um, but really, when you look at alcohol and the history of it, Other than when the government intervenes, alcohol is one of the most recession-proof type investments. It might actually go up during a recession. Yeah. (laughs) I'm being serious. I mean, think about it. I mean, one of the biggest things we have to do is we can't take sides, and I'll say, use this example politically, because everyone drinks for some reason. Yeah. Right? Your candidate loses, you're sad. Your candidate wins, you're excited. You You lose your job. You lose your job, you're sad. You get a job, you're happy. I mean, it doesn't matter. It's just people are drinking alcohol and there's a place for it in society. Obviously you don't want to abuse it, but it's that thing that it's how we all get away from every single day and what we're doing.
1: So if you want to go see what they're doing at J Rieger and co, you can first start by going to J dot com. That's J R I E G E R C O.com. And you can, uh, you know, I'm looking at your website right now. You've got, um, you can do distillery tours. You can check a lot of stuff out and, you know, Uh,
0: we got we basically what we did with our project we just had an area of the city that no one was investing in period
1: and where are you
0: so it's in uh to the east of downtown it's called the east bottoms in the specific area is called the electric park district and it was where the country's very first electric or one of the city's very first electric powered amusement parks was okay and so with this building we just had to really create something that would bring people down and so whether it's we have multiple bars on site that are totally different. We've got the massive production floor, historic exhibits. We have a slide for adults that goes from yes. the second floor down to the first floor. It's Let's probably go. the most social media thing so right you now. why you're ready to go? See. Yeah. He had you at slide. Yeah. We've got a dining room that's in our barrel warehouse that's fully surrounded by whiskey barrels. And you're, so you're in a fully climate controlled glass room, more or less. Um, we've got a 20-seat boardroom upstairs that's for companies to rent out. Uh, so really what we did is just build something that there are so many different carrots that everybody that comes down. It's a rigor world. Yeah. So it, I call it a, I call it a, uh, adult community center. <laughs> yeah.
1: Hey, there you go. I mean, the, you're using experience based marketing there. I mean, and that's what a lot of these places are doing and it's actually really powerful. I mean, we do a lot of that at full scale. I mean, with like our sweet and greet events and stuff like that, if you can give someone a memorable experience, your ability to have them evangelize your brand and who you are is remarkably, remarkably higher. And it's more effective because, you know, you show people a good time, something they remember, going can tell people about it. Yeah. Now, at the same time, there's a lot of responsibility that goes with that because you got to make sure they
2: actually have a good time. So for those that are listening, where can they buy your product? Like, So for people that are in Kansas City, can you buy it hopefully, virtually everywhere? Hopefully
0: at every single liquor store. I mean, it's even at
2: like places like Walmart and Target. Let's and stuff play like over-under, uh, Matt. Not going to be Walmart. Those are national um,
0: like placements where they more or less standardize everything about okay. the country.
1: Matt, we're going to play over-under, and the number's 25. Do you think that Rieger is distributed in more than 25 states or less? Um, I'll say less. You're correct, but not by many. It's twenty-four, right? Yeah. Right. Sorry, we're always trying to find new creative ways to to really push the push the envelope there. Have so it- <laughs> so
2: any kind of local liquor store probably has it.
1: Yeah,
0: it absolutely should. Okay.
1: I, I, I'll tell you, so if I went in and you know, like a bottle of liquors always is a gift in this time of year to a lot of people and a lot of stuff. If I went in and I'm sitting there and I'm seeing something like with some local flavor a brand I recognize and then there's Jack Daniels next to it it's not even a tough decision for me like 100% of the time I'm going with something that is a little different and I think the unique nature of that kind of stuff is cool I you know and I know that we weren't referring to the craft distillery part but I love the fact that over the I feel like over the last 15 to 20 years a lot of, a lot of, you know, brands were very straightforward. There wasn't a lot of selection in a lot of places for stuff. And it's really like, it's really come up. It's let a local, like the local flavor has been able to make itself to a lot more shelves. And this isn't just with liquor. I mean, it's with food and stuff like that. And, um, you know, we had a, a guy in and you weren't here that day, Matt, but, uh, that makes uh, hummus, the hummus company. And I didn't realize this every single Hy-Vee grocery store location has a say in what they buy to put on their shelves. So you could, cause he was like, yeah, I went down to my local Hy-Vee. I was like, yeah, I doubt that worked. He goes, no, actually it did. And, you know, just being able to talk about being able to sell Mm -hmm. like, and you guys have grown, you're, you guys have a lot more distribution than some of these local, you know, local businesses, but that wasn't always the case. So what was your what was your what was the hardest part about gaining and getting a distribution and sales channel that has now expanded to 24 states?
0: The the biggest thing that a lot of people forget when they're starting their company is, you know, if it's a brand-driven company especially is the product has to be good. I mean, it's it's so ridiculous to say and it seems so obvious to the three of us sitting right here, but most people just skip over that element.
1: Well, think, it has to be good. Yeah,
0: they think it's, yeah, it's, I, it's all about the I, brand. Yeah, you know, yeah. it's all about branding and the sales approach and all of that. And you're like, yeah, but at the end of the day, yeah, like, but if
2: you buy something and it's terrible, you're never going to buy but it. How, but yeah. even then, how do you compete with for shelf space with a 100 other companies, hundreds of other companies that sell vodka or whatever? I mean, it's it's really based upon three things, four things.
0: And you truthfully, when I say this, so it's different between Kansas City and outside of Kansas City. And in Kansas City, my least favorite thing that people will ever say to me is, oh, I just love you guys because you're local. And rather than saying thank you, I always look at those people and I go, is that the only reason? Do you like the product? Like, well, yeah, no, I love the product. I love and they start talking about it and the characteristics of it. And I'm like, good, like, make sure you let people know you you, you drink our products because you love our products, not because it's local, because local doesn't carry us very far. If it's not very good. And so society's really gotten to this point over, you know, I would say in our industry specifically, from when we started 5 years ago, everything local was good in every single marketplace that you're in. Well, now people are getting smarter and they're realizing what's good and what's bad. And so in other markets outside of Kansas City, you don't want to compete against local brands. At least 5 years ago we didn't want to because you lose every time because yeah. they're like, "Oh no, it's local. Like I'll always pick that." Well, now you can because they're realizing local maybe If it's not good, why are you going to waste your money and your time and your life on something that you don't necessarily love? So when you're looking at distributors and how you get that shelf space you're talking about, ultimately, it comes down to a few things. One, is it good? You know, can you leave a sample for a bartender and not explain about it? And the bartender tries it when you're already gone and your distributor is gone. And he's like, man, this whiskey is really, really good. What is this? Because if he's like, this is terrible, you're done. Second one is the brand doesn't look like it belongs. And that's something that's really important in our industry is in Kansas City or whatever your local market is, you can sell even if your brand looks like the biggest, cheesiest thing in the world's ever come across because you can claim that you're local and that can be your bragging point. But if you take your product outside of Kansas City or outside of whatever your hometown market is and it looks cheesy and not well put together and it looks like it doesn't belong, you lose there. Next one is price point. Does the quality of the product and the brand, the way it looks... Does it justify the price? Is the price less than what the bartender or liquor store owner feels it should be? And the last one is, do they like you? Sounds totally ridiculous. No, yeah, that, yeah. That's a big thing. But it's like, yeah. you know, do I want this person coming into my store
2: once or twice a year and having a 20-minute conversation with me? Or is this guy just so full of it? Well, and the, it? Way, the way the industry is going, if you go back 10 years ago or something, did people like – Tanqueray and Jack Daniels own 80% of the market share and they're slowly losing it because of brands like yours? I mean, is that the movement away from these big national brands?
0: Yeah, I mean, so that's the overall, it's been a loss of market share. And so the really big brands that are doing all the advertising, whether it's beer or spirits, all their advertising is just to prevent the bleeding, and just to minimize as much of the damage as possible. And so that's where you're getting into a lot of the general consolidation as it happens with any industry of these big brand houses like Jack Daniels is not the brand house jack daniels is a brand within brown foreman you know tanqueray is not the brand house that is just a brand within diageo and so those companies are going out and they're just buying everything that they think has legs to stand on if people will sell them and you're seeing a lot of people that had two different approaches the people that were trying to build the company and the people that were trying to build the company to sell and a lot of people that are coming in that are selling their companies are the ones that started it when they were 60 years old let's say and everything they were
2: doing was trying to be by the book to just be able to sell the company as quickly as possible. So I have a weird question about vodka I have to ask you. Isn't the whole point of it supposed to be flavorless? Uh, essentially. So then how, how is it – how do you create a vodka that's different from somebody else? Truthfully, <laughs> that's, that's, why, truthfully that's why we didn't lead with a vodka. Because um, so, that seems like a – A hard battle. Yeah. (laughs) We're going to make the best thing that doesn't taste. (laughs) Yeah. So, so vodka at the end of the day, (laughs) it's kind of like selling water, I guess. Yeah. Yeah, It really is.
0: Uh, And some people are willing to pay four bucks for certain bottles. But on the vodka side of things, you know, you're 100% right. If you actually did a, this is one of the most fun taste testings I've ever done. We lined up 10 different vodkas side by side from expensive to totally rock gut cheap. By and, the way, you can taste rock gut cheap vodka. Oh, yeah, It is not tasteless. Doing a, doing yeah. a, a vodka tasting yeah. with a bunch of different vodkas is actually really, really yes. interesting because you don't realize how different vodkas are overall. That's not the selling point. At the end of the day, the selling point on the vodka is if you love our brand, then try this. And they say, wow, this vodka is distilled right. It tastes really good and it will work in all of my cocktails. What's the price? And you tell them the price and it is right where that bartender or liquor store owner is, like, yeah, those are the vodkas that sell here. Like your brand already does well. Let's bring that in as well. So it's more or less a conduit for something else.
1: Yeah. Speaking of brands, have you ever played mixtape the game? No, I'd love to though. Thank you. I I appreciate the spirit. I pulled the perfect mixtape card today and you'll see why, because we've been talking about prohibition and there is something (laughs) currently in the midst of maybe being unprohibited, or as still prohibited, depends where you are, that it's involved in this question. So you can go to com, and you, sir, are going to leave with a copy of Mixtape the Game today because, yeah, that's how, that's how awesome we are here. It is not taped under your chair.
0: <laughs> so then what is that that I found under my chair? Uh, wow. I don't know.
1: I don't know. But if you go to the Startup Hustle YouTube channel, you might be able to see the video of us playing mixtape. <clears throat> All right. So I pulled a card out of the mixtape deck. I'm going to name a scenario and we are all going to pick a song that we feel goes best with this. We will vote for a winner. You may not vote for yourself, the best song or album that's, and that's really on the card Matt. So you could pick Lemp Biscuit because that is not still not an album.
2: Actually. What is the best
1: song slash album to listen to while smoking marijuana? (laughs) I'm going with 40 ounces to freedom by sublime yeah matt's struggling because i'm not sure
2: he knows the feeling uh no i've never done marijuana and i can tell by the way you said that <laughs> no <laughs> got, I, d- I did try the you, cbd
1: oil though yes that's way different I yeah think. way different yeah, and you don't have to admit that you've smoked marijuana to answer i'm clearing out the disclaimer for you
0: there i've been to Oh, uh, I've been to Colorado. Yeah, yeah. I think you get high when you get in Colorado at this point. I, uh, you know, this this will sound really uh, Kansas City of me, but I just really get into Garth Brooks. Okay. Just in general. Do you have an album? Um, truthfully, I just go to his Pandora channel.
1: Okay. Well, so we're going to open this up. You can. I'm just... going to go with Lincoln Parks' original album. Do you know the name? I don't remember what the name is. Am I going to win because I'm the only person that actually answered the question correctly with a song or album? I guess. But I can't win without your support. Vote against him. He always <laughs> votes against me. Dude. All right. So
2: let's recap. I got Linkin Park's original album. Which 22. we don't know the name
1: of. I'm going with Sublime's 40 Ounces to Freedom.
0: I'll just go Garth Brooks' Greatest Hits.
1: There you go, boom. I'm um, going with
0: Garth. Brooks. I'm going to
1: go with Garth too. So All congratulations. Right. Um, with that, you can also. Would you like to fire the money gun while you're here? Oh, I would love to. I mean, because that is, you know, kind of the whole prize here. So here we go.
0: Does it have those old coupons in it that you don't, would pull don't from, shoot the, it yet. Let from me, the grocery let store? Let me record
2: this. So <laughs> we we can, should do that. Should cut out some coupons. There
1: you, you go. Fire record. away, boss.
2: <laughs> this
1: is, shake it up. This is incredible. This
2: is such good. <laughs>
1: Unbelievable! There you go. <laughs> wow. Oh, that was quite a failure. It wasn't. It wasn't. The for those of you listening, the money gun was literally trying to fire sixty, twenty to eight. of them at a time. Yeah, it,
0: it wasn't wanting to make it rain. It was wanting to make it pour. It, yeah, <laughs> or hail. <laughs> well, all right. Well, Andy, I and pre- there's a two dollar bill in here.
2: Yeah, yeah,
1: that's like the one that's almost like finding the needle in the haystack, but not really. So, Andy, thanks again for coming in. And for those of you listening, go to jriegercode.com. We'll put a link in the comments or the description of today, however you want to figure it out. Go check out their distillery. Buy a bottle. Give it to some friends. Buy a whole bunch of bottles and give them to a whole bunch of your friends or your clients or do something. Um, We close out our episodes of Startup Hustle now with what we call the Founder's Freestyle. So you get to uh, say about whatever you want. You
0: get to say about whatever I want. Yeah, man. Man, It can be
1: about anything you want. It's a freestyle
0: wish I had uh, just a few minutes to think about this one um, that's part of the part of the surprise factor yeah trying to think about what agenda I'm trying to push these days um, I would say that uh, one of the biggest things that I focus on with what we've done that people forget about all the time is bridge burning and how terrible it is I'm such a firm believer in karma and with everything we do these days and you know every time that people want to get together or meet or talk and If you think it might be a waste of your time out there, just think about what a potential benefit, even if it's just something that's so minor, it might add to your value, to your life, to your company, whatever it is someday, because you never know when that person's going to come back around. You never know what type of people they're going to bring. And if you know that you've done that person right throughout all your interactions with that person, then hopefully whenever that person enters your life again, if they do, then you can almost guarantee that they're going to do you right as well.
2: I thought, I thought I just want to mention that I think it's interesting this type of business to invest in um, or build. You know, it's like you you create a product that you hope people are going to like a year later like that. That's crazy. But it's not too much different than software. I mean, you don't build software overnight either. I mean, software takes months, years sometimes to build and you hope some somebody will like it later. Um it's just, in to- it's just a very interesting business. You know, like somebody may come to you, like Walmart comes to you today and they're like, we need a million bottles of this for Christmas. And you're like, sorry, <laughs> don't have it. It's yeah. just, that's just kind of crazy, but you know, it's the business you're in. So it's do you have that
0: person from Walmart though? You could send them out.
2: <laughs> yeah, sure. Thanks. I'm going to expand on what both of you guys said. I think the,
1: you know, you mentioned not burning bridges and doing different stuff. I will burn a bridge to someone that I'm po- that I feel is toxic.
0: Oh, no, no, th- yeah. that's a different scenario. Yeah,
1: you know, I get it. And those, I actually encourage it, like, get those people away from your life and your business. But I definitely agree with the, uh, you know, the, um, and building bridges, you know, this is like not burning the, but also building new ones. Like for example, you hear you come in today to talk to us about what you do and share your entrepreneurial story with people that'll listen. And like, you don't know who knows where that's going to go. This is going to be online for quite a while. You get a lot of people that could listen to it in a lot of different places, but I think in the end, um, you know, I use the term army of evangelists and you can create, and I said, mentioned that earlier, you can, you can make sure people have a good time in and around what you do and, and let them know that your door and the bridge to you is a thing and it's something that exists. And I think that, you know, I spend a lot of time in life doing exactly that and, you know, I, I don't really come don't come into it with this huge sense of expectation. You know, just see what could happen, and when, and where, and put yourself on people's radar, and know that they can get a hold of you. And you know, much like Matt was saying about you know certain things taking time. Well, so does so does a brand, whether it's personal, whether it's a physical you know item. Much like you you make it at J. Rieger or it's software, you have to understand that these things take time to get people behind. I don't really, I think that. Um, 99% of the quote overnight sensations are, that's a false. They've, if you go back and look at those people or what they, you're like, they're really talented and you got discovered and it was huge. And that pro- person probably had like a 10 year history of just grinding hard, like right? Practicing, getting ready, putting themselves in enough spots that preparation and opportunity finally crossed paths and it was never luck. So, yeah, I mean, it, it takes a village. It does. It does, and and get and start building one around you, or talk to the people in the village next to you, or do whatever. So, you know, once again, uh, if you get a chance, go to jriegerco.com dot com, and uh, if you want to see pictures of today's episode, including our money gun trying to fire out why of money, <laughs> the money gun misfires a lot. I'm going to probably need to, we have two of them and one of them we can't even get open right now. So
0: it's just loaded with money.
1: Yeah. I'm going to get back
0: to trying to solve the money gun problems of the world. See, well, hopefully at the end of today at bare minimum, and we've got two people that the next time they're in liquor stores, they're going to be asking for it. Yeah. Well, uh,
1: yeah. And I was actually it's, I wasn't kidding. I was actually thinking, cause I got to figure out what we're going to send some of
2: our clients for,
1: for Christmas you know, with a card and whatever. And I'm thinking I, you know, some J Rigger might be a good, a good, you know, good software
2: developers need some alcohol. That's they usually, for damn So many sure. days, so many yeah. days keep it on their desks. Too. There's a thing called the Balmer's peak. You got to be in the Balmer's peak.
1: I have no idea what that means, yeah. but all I do know is that it's five o'clock somewhere. Yep see y'all next time
2: thanks
0: so much for listening to this episode of startup hustle with matt DeCoursey and matt watson for more great content and to stay up to date visit startup hustle.xyz and if you enjoyed today's episode please rate and subscribe and we'll catch you next time on startup hustle